This morning is the very first day, November 29th, of Advent, of the Advent season. And Advent is a word that means arrival. That's what it means. Uh, it's a season where the church, it's a season where Jesus' people intentionally, uh, we rehearse the news of Jesus' coming, of his incarnation, of him taking on flesh. Now we're removed from Advent chronologically. Okay, Advent, the advent of Jesus, the birth of Jesus happened in uh, the year zero, and we're 2,020 years forward from that. So we're removed from it chronologically, but we're still affected by Jesus's incarnation directly. Why? Because he's not dead. He is alive and he rules and he reigns today. And so we rehearse the good news of the fact that God in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity has become a person and lived for us in our place and also died in our place and was raised on the third day for our justification for our salvation. So this is why the church comes and intentionally focuses. It's an intentional season of historical focus for the church. That's what Advent is about. That's why we zoom in and take a look on the, at these events of his birth every single year. And we consider, um, we consider how the reality of Jesus's existence, the reality of who he is, has affected world history, actually steers world history, in particular Western history. It's an indisputable fact that the world over has never, Never seen a person as influential as Jesus Christ. He is the most, hands down, without a doubt, the undisputed heavyweight champion of world history formation. Right, think about it like this. Uh, the time and date stamp on your iPhone or your smartphone or even a physical photograph, whether it's 1968 or 78 or 88 or 2020, is a reference to the life of Jesus Christ. Because the year zero, so the Western calendar is delineated by BC, which is short for before Christ. Scientists are now calling it b the common era, before the common era. But, it's, but AD, anything that happens after Christ's birth has been referred to as Anno Domini. That's what the initials AD stand for, which means the year of our Lord. So even like the date, anytime somebody asks you, hey, what time is it? It's an indirect reference actually to the life of Jesus Christ. More books have been written about Jesus than anyone else on the planet, hands down. More songs have been sung to Jesus and are sung to him in adoration and ascribing him glory and worth than any other single person on the planet. More people associate Jesus with godhood than they do any other man who has ever lived, or woman for that matter. Two point, as of the, the 2010 um, kind of like census and, and world organizations coming together, 2.168 billion people in the world associate Jesus with Godhood. Whether they follow him or not on a meaningful level, that's something else to be determined. But they, 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 they count Jesus as having something to do with God. That's a solid third of the world's population. Solid third. 70 million people in the United States gather on a weekly basis to consider his claims, to worship him, to consider who he is. 70 million in the U.S. alone. It's 
crazy. The contribution that he has made to the world through his teaching, through his life, through his death, his resurrection, but also through the influence that he has on his followers throughout generations, that the, the contribution made through Jesus and his disciples is mind-boggling. From the creation of hospitals, Western medicine, Red Cross, direct reference to Jesus' death, uh, institutions of higher learning uh, were brought about in the West in particular by, uh, by Christians, by followers of Jesus, by seminarians. Um, 20 centuries of extreme care for the poor, feeding of the hungry, care for the marginalized, care for the immigrant. 20 solid centuries of sacrificial movement through the influence of Jesus in his people. As a church family, we're all about Jesus Christ. It's just the hill we're going to die on. All of life is literally all for Jesus Christ. He's the sum and center of our life together. He's the sum and center of our reality together. He is the one who influences how we live together, how we treat one another, how we, um, how, how we live, how we think about our resources, everything. Now, Christmas time is a unique time in history for disciples, for followers of Jesus in particular, because, uh, because um, if, in many ways, Jesus is appropriate. He's appropriate at Christmas time. He's culturally appropriate at Christmas time. It's common to hear songs um, sung and played in public that are explicitly Christ-centered. Talking about things like sin and the fall and talking about Christ's deity. Um, it's common uh, for your non jesus friends to accept a, an invite from you to a worship gathering at, the, at Christmas. People are just open to coming and to joining you and to considering the claims of Jesus Christ. It's common to hear people see, uh, it's common to hear people pray in his name, whether it's in public or in movies or media. It's common to see his face plastered on the end caps at the end, you know, in the aisles of the grocery store. Like Jesus seems to be kind of everywhere and commonplace and culturally appropriate. And so there are, there are for, for followers of him, there are a thousand opportunities to just speak about him in a way that's just not weird. Uh, because culture is talking about him. And so um, if there's ever a seasonal softball that culture has given us to talk about Jesus, it's Christmas time. It's a season of Advent. And so with this series, it's called Behind the Music. We're just, we're taking a fresh approach on Advent. And what we want to do is explore four distinct Christmas hymns that speak of Jesus. These hymns uh, are likely, if, you're, if your Spotify playlist is worth its weight, uh, it's got one or all of these four songs on it. You're going to hear these songs in radio stations. You're going to hear these songs sung in public, played in businesses, played in public spaces. And so the songs are Angels We Have Heard on High, which we just sung this morning. We're going to unpack some of the content. Where did this come from? The theological background of it and why it matters for us. Uh, we're also also going to talk about a, an old song, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, another song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. What is hark? Who uses that kind of language anymore? What is that even talking about? Uh, and then the last song, a song that everybody in the West has heard or is familiar with, Joy to the World. So we're just going to get into these songs because there is rich theological, meaning they speak 
speak the truth about who God is and who Jesus is. We're gonna get into the rich theological truth in these songs as a way to help equip you to think about them, to see them, to sing and engage with them, but also as a way, hopefully, as the Spirit uh, leads you to be able to just speak about them with the people around you. Each of these songs is somewhere between 150 to 200 plus years old. So they've been in our culture, American culture, Western culture, for quite some time. The song that uh, I'm speaking about this morning, Angels We Have Heard on High, it was um, written or largely popularized in England. So not even the United States. Now we're talking about uh, Europe. Now, uh, just on a personal note, lately, I have found myself, Advent means arrival. It's a time where you look forward to something. And I have found myself in 2020 and in the latter portion now, the final quarter of 2020, um, I've found myself looking forward to a substitute Advent. The substitute Advent that I've been looking forward to is calendar year 2021. I've just found myself looking forward to the arrival of 2021 because it means 2020 was behind me. It means 2020 is put to death in some ways, relegated to Michael Scott's special filing cabinet. If you're a follower of the office, you know that. If not, you're lost. Google Michael Scott's special filing cabinet. You'll appreciate it. Maybe you, uh, maybe you find yourself in a similar place. You find yourself weary. You, uh, you have adjusted your schedule enough. Enough is enough on these adjustments. You're over, just over it. You're over more canceled plans. You're claustrophobic inside to cultural upheaval, to mask or no mask tensions, to seemingly bottomless Facebook posts condemning people who don't share a similar point of view. You're beyond having to adjust even one more thing due to this virus. Don't even say homeschool. Don't even say homeschool. Maybe you find yourself longing for freedom. You find yourself longing for conflict's absence. You find yourself longing for a return to predictability. If that's you, if in any way those things are going on inside of you, if you've recognized these spasms in your own soul, you're primed for the spiritually rich season of Advent. You're primed for it. If any of you have had a back spasm, you know those things take you out. They stop you in your tracks. Spasms are meant to tell you something is wrong. Pay attention. Focus. Redirect. So if the weariness of 2020 is just kind of at play in your own soul, consider it a spasm in your heart understand that today is Advent Day number one, and it's an opportunity for you to, it's an invitation by the Holy Spirit for you to lean in and really for you to harness your discontent. A wild animal unharnessed works against you, but a wild animal trained and harnessed works for you. The discontent in your own soul this year by the grace of God and through the Spirit's work can be harnessed and can pull in a particular direction 
that helps you seek the Lord, that helps you find him. He's promised us that when we seek him, we will find him. So I want to just give you quickly um, four ways right out of the gates that you can engage Advent meaningfully this year. Now, you've already, don't go there, but you've already got an email in your inbox uh, this morning if you uh, are a part of our, um, if you're a part of our weekly email list. If you're not, olivelife.church forward slash newsletter, 10 seconds you can sign up for it. Here are four simple ways to engage Advent. Um, there is an app that we have been, uh, that we've purchased as a church um, and that we have really been promoting. It's called Dwell. Um, if you don't have Dwell, you can find it on the App Store, but use a, a code that we give you. Um, you can find it on our social media. You can find it uh, in the email as well. And if you don't have either of those or don't know where to go, come and see me. But Dwell has a 27-day Advent listening plan, and they also have a PDF that goes with it that's like 60-some pages. The bottom line is this PDF, um, they, they take about, it's like a five-minute read every day. Uh, it just gets your mind focused. Um, it gives you the listening plan. You, you just listen to it, and it'll take you through it on the app itself. But with what's, what's unique and what's really powerful about the PDF, you can just pull it up on your phone, is every single week there is a common prayer that you can just engage with. It's like three or four sentences. It's a prayer that's just meant for you to pray and orient your heart toward Jesus Christ. But then there's also four or five sentences about a practice that you can uh, that you can engage in throughout the week that's a, a, a practice of mindfulness so the first week they're talking a lot about prayer so they're asking you to consider where you pray when you pray how you pray and there are these little just tips and practical applications that you can adopt into your life and into your daily rhythms right now on the ground with virtually no effort but they will provide and yield dividends. So check out Love's Pure Light. It's this dwell Advent devotional. Um, if you have young kids, um, the Jesus Storybook Bible, if you have a copy of the Jesus Storybook Bible, uh, grab it. You could just read it with your family at night, uh, however you do, living room, bedrooms, kids sitting on the beds, at your feet, however you do it. Read the New Testament. There are 23 chapters uh, that take about five to seven minutes a night to just read with your kids. Just read and process it, ask them some questions, and pray. If you're new to following Jesus, the Jesus Storybook Bible is a great place to start if you're an adult. My wife and I have been exceedingly um, blessed and, and benefited by this book where the subtitle is Every Story Whispers His Name. So this, this, this kid's Bible shows you how to connect the stories of Jesus, this, the stories in the Old Testament to Jesus Christ, as well as the stories in the New Testament more explicitly to Jesus. Um, there is a, a specific Advent devotional. It's called Prepare Him Room. This is a family devotional. Um, you can find it on Amazon. The book is a few weeks out, but if you get it on Kindle, you can grab it today and, and have it today. It's by a guy named Marty Mikowski, and Marty Mikowski is hands down the best like family uh, kind of devotional author that I've ever seen. Uh, our family uses one of his books right now, and we're going to begin Prepare Him Room tonight. Uh, and then this one is different. This one is not, um, this one is not Advent-oriented, um, but it is a podcast. It's actually an audio book, unlike anything I've ever heard. It's 
It's called Emblems of the Infinite King. It's written by a professor at Western Seminary named Ryan Lister, and it's set to uh, it's set to this audio score behind the scenes by uh, a record label named Humble Beast or a, a band a hip hop group called uh, Beautiful Eulogy out of Portland, Oregon. And this uh, th- this reading it's they're they're in chapters there's about eight or nine of them tells the gospel story in a way that is just making my own imagination come to life you can get it on spotify you can get it on uh, apple music wherever you find stuff so these are these are some simple ways just to help you lean in in 2021 they can prime you for some renewed rhythms of being with god of seeking to know him Right. I want to. Um, I want to just transition a bit and and speak briefly on um, singing. The church, when we come together, one of the hallmark practices of our corporate gatherings is song. We sing together congregationally. Now, when referring to Christmas hymns. Christmas hymns are far more than nostalgic. So I'm referring now to Christmas hymns, but I also have the broader picture of the church's singing congregationally in view. Christmas hymns, they're more than nostalgic. They're more than tradition. They're more than cute and comforting. When the people of God sing together, when we sing together as a congregation, we sing Christ-centered hymns and songs Have you ever considered that these are offensive weapons of spiritual warfare? Think about what's happening when we gather together with one voice to announce through these songs the true story of the world. We're announcing the reality of the fall. We're announcing the reality of our own longing, the longing within our souls for things to be put right. But we're also announcing God's glorious grace to the undeserving, to us. And at Christmas time, through these Christmas hymns, the true story of the world, it's announced indiscriminately. It's announced through God's people, through his disciples, but it's also announced and sung through those who are not yet his people, but are right on the verge, right on the edge, gathering people that he's calling to himself, but they've not yet crossed over a line of faith and trust in Jesus Christ, but not even disciples and almost, or not yet disciples, but also these Christmas hymns are in the mouths of those who hate God those who don't know him, those who are far from him. Christmas hymns are, uh, they're anthems of praise and they're anthems of comfort. They're praise to God and comfort to mankind. But in the ears of those who hate God, in the ears of the demonic, in the ears of Satan himself, Christmas hymns are anthems of war. They're anthems of Satan, sin, and death's fate, defeat. At Christmas time, the people of the West sing. It's just one of the things that we do. It's one of the only times throughout the year that Westerners and Americans in particular sing together. Another time we're going to be at athletic events where people are singing in the stands. It's powerful. Another time uh, occasions are concerts. Uh, But weekly, the people of Jesus gather together to sing and to unite our voices together. 
the, the, the time of Christmas, the season of Christmas, it's unlike any other time of the year. In fact, we call it the most wonderful time of the year or the most magical time of the year. We greet one another with special sayings. That we bake mountains of sweet things and give them away to our neighbors. We exercise a generosity with more intensity in the Christmas season than at most other times of the year. But something else that we do is culture at large in the West sings theologically rich songs of praise and hope as announcements of this true story of the God who has loved and sought out his people. So here's what that all comes down to. The church doesn't gather to sing as a cute way of warming God's heart. That's not what we're doing when we're gathering as the church. It's not a cute expression that just kind of warms God's heart. The church sings as a unified display, each of her members declaring allegiance to their king. That's what's happening when we sing. We sing as a pronouncement of God's glory. We sing as a pronouncement of our redemption. We sing as a pronouncement of Satan's fate. Every member in the church, when we sing together, armed to our teeth with loud, triumphant songs of victory. That is what is meant to be occurring when the church gathers and sings together. So as you think about corporate singing, as you think about, think about caroling, or you think about, um, you think about gathering here on a Sunday morning, let that move you beyond maybe some of your mumbling the words out. But what does it look like for you to begin to get those songs out of your mouth with some more volume fueled by belief and faith within you? Personally, I don't sing. I yell. <laughs> that's just like, that's how, I, that's how I do it. It seems to work for me. I yell a bit. If you find me on a track all by myself singing, it will not be pretty in your ears. Uh, but one of the ways that I've found to engage is I just like to holler a bit. So maybe that's you too, guys. You can get behind that. Singing is something that's uncomfortable for you, but you could shout. You could shout. It's all over the Psalms. Shout to the Lord. It's a command. You could do that when you sing. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to read um, Luke 2, verses 1 through 21. It's the third book of your New Testament, the third gospel written by a man named Luke. He's telling the story of the birth of Jesus Christ here. <clears throat> so turn to Luke chapter 2, verse 21, and this is what is behind the song, Angels We Have Heard on High, which I'm going to walk through the lyrics of that song just briefly, and then we'll be done this morning. All right, God's word read this morning. In those days, the days of Jesus' birth, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Notice these, uh, these finite names here, these historical names. This is, these are real events in real history described to us by a medical doctor named Luke. This decree went out by Caesar Augustus that all the world or the known world should be registered or counted. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he, Joseph, was of the house and the lineage of King David, who had lived a thousand years previously. 
He went to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, the woman that he was engaged to, and she was with child. Now he's engaged, but she's with child. The Holy Spirit has created this child within her, and this child is growing in her womb. And while they were there in Bethlehem, the time came for Mary to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, so in the region in the hills surrounding Bethlehem here, there were shepherds out in the field. They're keeping watch over their flock. Notice this, by night. So it's nighttime. Imagine these shepherds out in the field. They've got their animals bedded down. They've got things under control. They're settled down. Darkness surrounds them. There is no light pollution in their day. The only light that they have is the moon and the stars. And an angel of the Lord, verse 9, appeared to them. All of a sudden, they see something they were not planning to see. And more than that, the glory of the Lord shone around them. And what is their response? They're filled with what? Fear. That would be my response if I was a shepherd in the dark of night in a field with my animals bedded down. I would be afraid at this thing that I was seeing. Now look at the first word of the angel who knows what they're experiencing. Fear not. Why? You think something bad is coming. You think this is disaster, but behold, I behold, which means take notice. I bring you good news, not just good news, but good news of great joy that will be for all the people. It's going to be a public thing. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, Bethlehem, a Savior. Jesus' name means God saves, who is Christ or Messiah, the Lord or Master. And this will be, think about how much is packed in that statement right there. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this, shepherds, will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. So if you want to go and see, you want to go and trust but verify, if you want to go, you're going to find this baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly, now the angel is no longer alone, there was with the angel a multitude, that, that is a number meant to display for us, um, a, a multitude that no one could count, of who? Of the heavenly host, praising God together and saying this, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those uh, with whom he is pleased. When the angels, now plural, the angels the host and the angel who was speaking to them went away back into heaven, were vanished from their sight. The shepherds said to one another, all right, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Wait, didn't the angels, aren't they the ones who announced this to them? No, the shepherds ascribed the angels as being messengers and they recognized that this message is from the Lord. The Lord has made this known to us. And so they went with haste or with the quickness and found Mary and Joseph and they found the baby Jesus lying in a manger. And when they saw it, when they saw it with their own eyes, 
They had made known the saying out in the field by the angels that had been told them concerning this child. Now think about it. Mary and Joseph are in Bethlehem. This isn't the day of cell phones. This isn't the day of telecommunications. They are hunkered down. Mom just gave birth. They're in a stable. They're wondering at their newborn baby. They have been spoken to by angels, but nobody else is on their radar and at the door. And some angel or some shepherds come in out of the field and they tell Mary and Joseph the message the angels have told Mary and Joseph previously. Think about what would be happening. Think about how wide your eyes would get in that moment as these shepherds relay what was told to them. Verse 18, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Awe in the heart, worship brimming here. But Mary, she treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds, they returned out to the fields. What were they doing? Worshiping, glorifying, and praising God for all that they had heard and seen just as it had been told them. And at the end of the eight days, Jesus was eight days old. When he was circumcised, he was called Jesus or Yeshua, which means God saves This was the name given by the angel Gabriel before Jesus was conceived in the womb. This is God's word. This is the content behind the song that we just sang. The last song we sang, Angels We Have Heard on High. The content comes from Luke chapter 1 through, Luke chapter 2, 1 through 21. Now, a little background on this song. The song Angels We Have Heard on High was written in 1862. Uh, by a 49-year-old Roman Catholic priest. Uh, His name was James Chadwick. He was born in Ireland, Chadwick was, but he spent the majority of his adult life in England serving the Catholic Church. He served the Catholic Church as a priest. He served the Catholic Church, uh, the Roman Catholic Church, as a professor, and then towards the end of his life as a bishop, kind of overseeing a series of churches as well. Uh, Chadwick, there's not much known about this guy, but he was known as a man of great personal dignity and great personal charm. We can actually hear this in the first line of his song, which we'll get to in just a moment, but he was also remembered for his gentleness. So he was just a, he was a kind fellow. Um, He died at the age of of 69 years old in uh, Newcastle, England in 1882. Now, Angels We Have Heard on High is the song that Chadwick is most remembered for in history. Uh, He'd written several other hymns, but Angels We Have Heard on High is what put him on the map and, and makes us remember him. The tune of this song, the music, the score behind this song is from an old hymn called Gloria, which is where we get the rising notes in the chorus of Gloria from. It was written to that tune, and Chadwick largely borrowed, um, he borrowed probably half of the lyrics from a French hymn that was written 20 years earlier by an unknown author, and the name of that song was The Angels in Our Countryside. That's what the name of this old French song was. Um, Chadwick's song, it shares lyrical similarities with this song, The Angels in Our Countryside, but it has some unique distinctions. And so it's known as a derivative work. He derived a lot of his content from the French song, but then he added uh, much of his own flavor. Now, the movement of the song, it's sung from multiple perspectives. The The very first verse of this song is sung from the perspective of the shepherds in the fields, 
They're talking about what they have experienced. That's just where they start. And so this is a moment of evangelism. They're saying this. They're saying, angels we have heard on high. These angels are swinging, are singing rather sweetly over the plains. Now, this probably, this is a poetic rendering as Chadwick imagines it here. He's a man known for his personal charm, and he's a man known for his... Um, his gentleness as well, but I'm not so sure these angels were singing sweetly over the plains. Whenever you see the word or the term heavenly host in your New Testament, it is speaking of a multitude of angels arrayed for battle. It's speaking of the angelic armies. It's likely that this this song was, uh, this, this praise be to God in the highest was deafening to their senses. Chadwick then says in his second line, the mountains in reply, they're echoing their joyous strains. This is a poetic statement of both men and nature recognizing the power of this event that's taking place in the fields. Jesus later on in Luke's gospel in Luke 1940 said, if mankind won't worship him, then even the rocks would cry out. And so it seems that Chadwick is even calling this forward here, that, that not just men and angels are proclaiming the glory of God, but the creation, there's something happening in creation where they also are glorifying God. And then he goes on to this, uh, this chorus, which is Gloria in excelsis Deo. Gloria in excelsis Deo. Gloria means glory, and Deo is the Latin word for God. So this is a Latin phrase here, which means glory to God with excellence or glory to God in the highest. Excelsis is the Latin word that means in the highest degree, and it's where we get our word literally excellence from. So glory to God in the highest degree. And this song, as Chadwick writes it, it not only includes glory to God in the highest, but the, the announcement from the angels was also an explicit announcement of peace and on earth peace among those with whom God is pleased. Those God is calling to himself. Those who will bow the knee to Jesus Christ and will receive the pleasure of God upon them. And so Chadwick is, in his lyrics here, he's drawing out that the fullness of time had now come. The Messiah is not only born, but the Messiah is being revealed publicly here. I'm thinking of uh, Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, where the Apostle Paul, he says, when the fullness of time had come, at the fullness of time, when things were ready, when history was properly oriented, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born of Mary, born under the law to the Jews within Israel to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And then Paul goes on to write, so the purpose of his birth is so that we might be brought in, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And then Paul would say, and because you are sons, God has sent a confirming, sealing sign to you. He sent the spirit of his son into our hearts who testifies within us, who cries out, Abba, this familial term, Abba, Father. And Paul finishes up in, in Galatians 4 verse 7. He says, so you're no longer a slave, but you're a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. 
The second verse of this original song, uh, which we're not actually singing in our arrangement, um, it's written from the perspective of crowds or onlookers who are responding to these shepherds, um, their, their announcement. Um, they're essentially saying, tell us more. So the, the second verse of the song says, shepherds, why this jubilee? So why are you, from the crowds, why are you guys frantic with celebration? Why do your joyous strains prolong? Why does your joy extend itself and spread and endure? What the gladsome tidings be which inspire your heavenly songs? What in the world is behind this and what has inspired your earnest worship? And then it goes to the chorus again. Gloria in excelsis Deo. Glory to God in the highest. Now the third verse is written now as a response from the shepherds to the crowds. The shepherds speak to the crowds. The crowds speak to the shepherds. The shepherds now answer the onlookers' questions. What do they say? Come and see. Come and experience what we have seen. The responsibility is on the onlookers or the crowds or the public to respond. But the point is, is that from the shepherd's perspective, the invitation has been given. So this is highly evangelistic. It's highly invitational. Come to Bethlehem and see Christ whose birth the angels sing. Luke tells us that these shepherds in the fields, they traveled to Bethlehem and they found the newborn king in Luke 2.15. They went and they saw for themselves this Christ whose birth the angels were singing of was this pronouncement of the angels in the countryside as they appeared to the shepherds. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom God is pleased. And then the third line of this song says, come adore on bended knee. Speaking of our submission. Come and adore. Come and worship. Our proper response is adoration and submission. That's our proper response to a king, whether a child or whether an adult. Uh, It it is. This song is an evangelistic song, and it it carries with it joy-filled appeal. Uh, The invitation in the third verse, come, appears twice here. How good does it feel to be invited to an event, to be invited to something exciting? If you're familiar with the Enneagram, my Enneagram 7s are just twitching in your seats a little bit right now. You love to be included. You love to be invited. So this is a come and see, a definite moment, a definite aim behind it. Come adore on bended knee with adoration and allegiance. Bend it. Bend the knee. Come and see. Now here's this theological, um, just power punch here. Christ the Lord, the newborn king. This is the promised Messiah, the one who would save and rescue not just Israel, but the world. He's the Christ. He's He's the Lord. He's the one who's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And not only that, but he's the king, which means he's the one who reigns and rules. And also, he's a newborn which brings with it the the understanding that that he is both God eternal, but he's also God born. He's also man. He's also taken on flesh. He's the mediator who has come to redeem his people, the one who's come to announce the pleasure of his father upon followers of Jesus, those who bend the knee. 
And then this refrain, Gloria in excelsis Deo, Gloria in excelsis Deo. Evangelism. Evangelism is a word that, that comes directly from the Greek word for gospel, euangelion or evangelion. Evangelism is all about bringing attention to what or to who you love. That's what evangelism is about in its rawest sense. It's about bringing attention, attentiveness to who or to what you love. Uh, The word itself, like I said, it means good news. It comes from the word evangelion. So evangelism, it's about the proclamation of good news. And Chadwick, in his song here, he helps us see that when good news happens to you, like good news happened to the shepherds, you can't help but talk about it. When good news happens to you, when the Lord speaks to you, when the Lord directs you, when the Lord comforts you, when the Lord corrects you, when the Lord is at play and at work in your life, you cannot help, if it feels like good news, you cannot help to speak about it. Now, if we rarely talk about Jesus, we rarely talk about how we're seeing evidence of his grace in our lives, it should alert us that something is amiss. It's a diagnostic. Something is off. If the name of Jesus Christ and his work in our own hearts is rarely coming out of our own mouths, it should alert us that something is off. Every quiet person announces good news to a close friend. The young person announces good news to her friends. The old man calls his kids when good news is at hand. The young wife can't wait to call her husband at the notion of the good news that she has experienced. Now, what if we all made a simple shift in how we talk about God? What if it was just, what, what if it was a, um, what if we got um, this idea of evangelism as the set-apart thing that I do with my life, and what if we just decided to make a simple commitment, a simple shift in how we talk about God? What if it looked something like this? When I recognize that God has done something in me, God has done something to me, God has done something through me, I'm just going to talk about it, and I'm not going to discriminate. I don't really care who is there. I'm just going to talk about it. Coworkers, neighbors, family, kids, parents, brothers, sisters, whoever it might be, when God has done something, you're just going to start looking for ways to express what he's done to you, through you, or in you. I wonder how that might just change the nature of our conversations if we were just willing to express the small things. You know, I was praying this morning and I I, I really was corrected. Here's how I've been thinking about a certain issue in my family and I, I, I just wanted to express it. I'm really glad God has been kind to me today. Or I was praying this morning and the Lord really just named you for me and I want you to know that I love you. I appreciate you. Is there anything that you need? Like simple expressions where God is speaking to you and you know it and rather than containing it within ourselves and kind of suppressing it, what if we just made a simple shift in our lifestyle that when God does something in me, to me, or through me, I'm going to talk. I'm just going to talk. It could be awkward. It probably won't be awkward. I'm just going to talk. This is a definite and specific way that you can ascribe glory to God in your everyday, just by talking about what he does to you, through you, or in you. 
This, uh, we've got a verse that we've added in this song, and, and, and it's the bridge. It goes, sing this heavenly song tonight. Glory be to God in the highest. Join the cloud of witnesses, the angels, the people who have gone, the saints who have gone before us. Glory be to God in the highest. Sing the heavenly song tonight. Glory be to God in the highest. Angels we have heard on high. Glory be to God in the highest. And then the final verse of this song is, see him in a manger laid. Just as it was told these shepherds, See him in a manger laid, laid, whom the choirs of angels praise. Mary, Joseph, mom and dad, lend your aid while our hearts in love relay these voices of praise. So essentially they're saying, join us in worship and wonder at what God has done. Now, I think that Chadwick probably meant well, but I think he's off in this last verse as well. Mary was laps ahead of him in her worship and in her adoration of Jesus Christ. She, the, the text in Luke chapter 2 says that she treasured all of these things in her heart, but the angel had spoken to her events with her husband as she, as she conceived Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. This had been going on in her, quaking in her, this kind of worship that she was just, that she was just pondering to herself here. So for Chadrick to say, Mary and Joseph lend your aid? I don't think so. Like they're the first worshipers on the scene here. Luke records how Mary responded when the angel told her she'd be giving birth to the Messiah in Luke chapter 1 verses 46 through 55. This is what she says. We sang it earlier in the song, He Who is Mighty. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he he has looked on the humble estate of his servant for behold, take note, all on, from, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. This is God's word. Father, as we sing as we consider the birth of Christ, as we consider Advent rhythms, as we consider how to um, lead ourselves personally or how to lead the people around us, as we consider the season of Christmas, keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ of Nazareth. We can partake and we can have fun with Santa and all the other stuff but help us keep our worship reserved for one alone, and that is Jesus Christ. And through our worship, may you be glorified, orient our hearts to you, help us to pursue you, put the hunger and the fire within us where it's cooling, to know you and to love you and to carve out time in our schedules for you. In Jesus' name. Amen.